This is the East Trauma Cast. Welcome to the next Trauma Cast. This is Lauren Dudas. I'm an acute care surgeon from West Virginia University. Before we get started, we'd like to say thank you to Hemonetics for their generous and unrestricted educational grant for the Online Education Committee and TraumaCast. Today, we have a special group to discuss pancreatitis. This was organized by Patrick McGonigal, one of our new guest moderators, and he has an excellent group of speakers here. So without further ado, Pat, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself and what we're talking about? Hi, I'm Pat McGonigal. I'm an acute care surgeon at the University of Iowa in Iowa City, Iowa. And today we're going to talk about necrotizing pancreatitis. This is a challenging and oftentimes humbling disease process for acute care surgeons. Uh, as we look back at our East TraumaCast catalog, we surprisingly have never tackled this topic. So we're excited to cover it today. Over the last decade or so, new literature has shifted the treatment paradigm at many centers. I'm very excited to chat with our expert panel today to unpack necrotizing pancreatitis and challenge the surgical dictum that you should never mess with the pancreas. So why don't we start off with introductions? So let's start with our co-moderator and East Online Education Committee Chair, Carrie Valdez. Hi, everyone. I'm Carrie Valdez. I'm an acute care surgeon in West Michigan, and I am certainly here as a listener and a learner and to be a moderator. I'm not one of the experts, but you were right. We looked back through our archives and we've done pancreatic injury, the crawfish episode, but we have not done pancreatitis episode. So I'm uh, really looking forward to it. And thank you, everyone, for, for joining us. Now, if our guests could please introduce themselves, I'd like to begin with Dr. Clancy Clark. Hi, I'm Clancy Clark, and thank you for inviting me. I'm a pancreas surgeon at Wake Forest Baptist Health in North Carolina. My focus and expertise is actually on acute pancreatitis, chronic pancreatitis, and pancreas cancer. So this is a great opportunity to share my interest and tell you my perspective. Dr. Diaz? Hi, my name is Jose Diaz. I'm also a trauma acute care surgeon. I'm at the University of Maryland Medical Center with the Shock Trauma Center. We are a major referral center for the state in acute necrotizing pancreatitis, uh, and it has become one of our areas of expertise. We admit uh, and take care of all the acute and chronic pancreatitis patients. And as such, we manage the acute as well as the chronic complications. Dr. Tucker. Thank you. My name is Sham Tucker. I'm Director of Advanced Therapeutic Endoscopy at West Virginia University Medicine. And just as much of the group has, has already shared, it is a real passion for us to serve the needs of those suffering from debilitating pancreatic disease, including pancreatitis, pancreatic cancer, necrotizing pancreatitis. And I'll also add that we are the primary referral center for the entire state of West Virginia when it comes to pancreatic disorders. Very good. Thank you all for your introductions. So let's begin our discussion here going over what are the most common underlying causes of pancreatitis at your institutions and in what age groups are we looking at for, the, for this problem? When we start with Dr. Diaz. Yeah, so we are a little bit unique, even though we're a university hospital, we still have quite a bit of alcohol as a primary disease process. I would say that probably equal in terms of the patient population that we see both alcohol and gallstone disease. Interestingly enough, most of our alcohol-related pancreatitis patients tend to be younger, and most of the biliary disease patients tend to be older. Over time, we have had uh, all the other types of pancreatitis other than scorpions. We don't have that kind of scorpion in Maryland, but we've seen the entire gamut from drug-induced to hyperparathyroid to we have had an ME syndrome patient and pretty much everything in between. 
but it's primarily still alcohol and Goldstone disease. Clancy and Sham, is that what you're seeing at your institutions? I would definitely agree that as a tertiary referral center and getting patients from approximately five different states for complications, secondary necrotizing pancreatitis, you get to see the spectrum of disease. And, but by and far, the most common in younger adults is alcohol. And then gallstone disease causing pancreatitis is sort of age independent. And it kind of correlates with the incidence of the disease as it increases with age, then the incidence of gallstone pancreatitis increases with age. We have had many drug-induced and hypertriglyceridemia should be mentioned as a as sort of on the list, like probably top three or four that causes devastating necrotizing pancreatitis. I think that's just below alcohol and gallstones and severity. Yeah, I would agree with Clancy. We have a very rural Appalachian population that we see a significant amount of alcoholic-induced pancreatitis and gallstone-induced pancreatitis. We also see a fair amount of autoimmune pancreatitis. And it's actually quite underdiagnosed in our state of West Virginia. And so as we've come along and, and try to increase awareness and education, that's one of the areas that we're seeing commonly not easily picked up or that we're finding a lot of that, that we can provide definitive therapies for. One thing that I know at our institution has kind of shifted even in the couple of years that I've been there is really who is the primary managing team for these patients. So I was wondering if you guys could comment on who does that at your institution and when does surgery or advanced endoscopists get involved? So on the issue of who should be managing patients versus who should be caring for them, operating on them, the procedures, I, I mean, it's a multidisciplinary team for us at our institution, but I know across the country, it varies greatly based on the resources and availability of the respective experts in that area. And so I don't think it's right to say that only so-and-so should be taking care of these patients. And you'll see institutions that it's all surgeons taking care of the patients. And you'll see institutions where it's all hospitalists and medical providers taking care of the patients. It just depends on the institutional expertise and what they provide. But in our institution, it's a real team-based effort where the surgeons play a I call it the cruise ship director role, where we just make sure everything happens at the right time, where the interventional radiologists and the gastroenterologists play the role of interventional procedures, and we, we do less of that. It's, yeah, it's Lauren, very I'll... similar at the University of Maryland. We uh, also are the primary admitting service and initially evaluate all patients presented to the either as transfers or as admissions to the units by the various medical services as well. And although I, I guess that's a really nice analogy of cruise ship because this is a really long process, but we also collaborate quite a bit with our GI endoscopists. And we have our actually our, our two or three of our go-to endoscopists who manage this disease process with us together with several of our interventional radiologists. And we've previously had several organizational meetings with our intensivists, although I am one of the intensivists, but to try to make sure that we get everyone on the same page. And it's not that uh, surgery or GI does most of the procedures, is we try to really work hard on making sure the patient gets the right procedure at the right time. Yeah, as you're probably familiar with as well, Lauren, at our institution at West Virginia University, we also take a multidisciplinary approach where 
you know, we have the interventional radiologists, the advanced endoscopists, the pancreatobiliary surgeons, the radiologists all coming together to discuss every case of complicated pancreatic disease that comes in through the door. We admit to both medicine and surgical services, but there's a very low threshold for anyone with anything more than a mild pancreatitis to involve this group in order to optimize the outcomes related to them. And I think obviously there's what Clancy said earlier really makes the most sense. The, the, the management is really dependent on the local expertise. So if you don't have the strengths in advanced endoscopy, but have an interventional radiology and, and surgery, then, then definitively the, those services really need to be involved. On the flip side, if you don't have that IR support, then, then advanced endoscopy and surgery oftentimes have to play an even greater role. But the choice of management really depends on having the local expertise, where a lot of these institutions, as, as ours is, is we're lucky to have expertise in all these areas so that we can do what we believe works best for the patient when we all come together. I'm going to jump back just a quick second. And Clancy, you self-described your role as being a pancreatic surgeon. So I'm going to send the toughest question your way. How do you diagnose pancreatitis? So there is a definition of pancreatitis that is in the early course of the disease, which is in your emergency room, that it has to do with abdominal pain, nausea, elevated analyze or lipase, and some radiographic imaging indicating pancreatitis. That's sort of like your textbook. And I often tell people that that's great and all. And the majority of pancreatitis, 85% plus of pancreatitis resolves and you actually never need a surgeon outside of taking the gallbladder out if it's indicated. So it's a nice thing to know, but really pancreatitis screams at you after a couple of days. And if you're in Europe, you're not going to be doing any imaging until seven days into the disease course. And in the U.S., we tend to image people really early and people will argue with me that, oh, they don't really have pancreatitis, they have something else. And, and it's sort of a moot discussion early on because generally most pancreatitis will resolve on its own. So you never actually have to get involved. But yes, there is a well-defined definition of it early on. Clancy, you made a really good analogy to the cruise ship director. Part of a cruise ship is having good food though too. So let's talk about nutrition a little bit here. When do you feed these patients and how do you feed them? Do you try to feed them orally, nasogastrically, nasojejunally? What, what is your practice? Well, I'll speak up first. So typically in the patients that we admit that have a little bit of pancreatic edema or maybe a little peripancreatic fluid collection, it's a typical kind of wait for their pain to begin to resolve. They're kind of the SIRS to kind of begin to resolve and then usually start with liquids in advance tolerated. That's very different than the patients with evidence of, you know, evolving pancreatic necrosis or developing any duodenal or obstruction secondary to edema. Most of the time, those patients, as all of you know, usually end up with some degree of an obstructive process. And we are very, very aggressive at getting a core pack, which is one of the feeding tubes that you can get around with the magnet. We're actually getting radiology to actually put a post-ligamentitrice feeding tube in. And we do that usually within the week of admission or transfer after they're, you know, after they're a little bit more stable. Yeah, if the patient in, in our experience hasn't been able to tolerate PO within three to four days of admission, we like to go with enteral nutrition. You know, enteral nutrition over TPN, I think we all agree, is hands down the way to go, much less costly and much less adverse outcomes related to, to the nutrition. The choice of the type of nutrition, whether it's oral, NG, and, and NJ, I agree. It, it depends upon what the patient can tolerate. 
So, so if you have a situation where they're not able to really tolerate oral or nasogastric feedings, then, then essentially we go with the NJ type feeding. And oftentimes that's very predictable if, if there is that evidence of obstruction. Other times the motility of the gut can just be so slow that it, it's best served with, with us placing an NJ from the get-go. And generally radiology or, or the GI services are able to place those tubes. From my perspective on nutrition, I think we should be really clear on when you get engaged with the patient sort of as a trauma surgeon or a critical care surgeon in the context of their disease. And I think just we should mention there's sort of phases of acute pancreatitis and assuming the patient shows up de novo to your institution with less than 24 hours of onset of pain, pain is the indicator of the start of the pancreatitis. So if it's five days that they're writhing and pain at home before they come in, and you really have to march back five days to when they started their pancreatitis. That's very different that de novo, less than 24 hours patient versus they're three weeks into the disease and they're hitting their bottom of the disease where mortality starts to spike again. And they have not been fed for two and a half weeks at a smaller outside hospital where they were hoping the patient was getting better. And now they're being admitted to your ICU. And the referral is, oh, this person now has severe necrotizing pancreatitis. The clock didn't start like just because someone got another follow-up CT. The clock started three weeks prior when their disease actually started. And nutrition needs to be approached a totally different way at that point. If they haven't received nutrition in three weeks and they're coming to you with albumin that's not a detectable, you got to think differently. And you might even just start TPN on them if they are not, it's not even viable to feed their gut at that point, because you're going to start doing multiple endoscopies on them over the next three days to do your necrosectomies. And every time you put a Dobhoff tube in, it comes out just before the next procedure. So you got to be conscious of the context in which you start your nutrition. However, I think it's absolutely true in the first 24 hours, you don't feed a patient with pancreatitis. By 48 hours, you should be feeding them. If they're not tolerating feeds by 72 hours, you should be talking about a feeding tube of some sort, however you want to put it in. In my opinion, the data shows that you can feed them any which way you want. And some people tolerate gastric feeds and some tolerate post-pyloric feeds. And if they're not tolerating post-pyloric feeds after solid attempts at doing it, then you really need to give TPN. And unfortunately, I've seen way too many patients go weeks weeks of no nutrition because the Dobhoff tube can't get positioned well, or they don't tolerate it or whatever. And they're malnourished. And I get called in to, to quote, save the day weeks into the course. And it's really unfortunate. And so I think nutrition is number one is when do you feed them? You feed them as soon as possible. Yeah. Clancy, I think you're making a really good point. Sometimes I've run into roadblocks or frustrations where they're tolerating, let's say 20 or 30 cc's of trickle tube feeds, in my opinion, they're nowhere near goal. And yet that still ends up being a hard stop historically, the pharmacy level saying, yes, we'll allow or, or let the two feeds go forward. Or these guys get their fevers or intermittent low-grade fevers that then kind of bunch up against the wall with getting a um, pick line placed or something for the TPN. Jose, I know certainly pancreatitis is area of your expertise as well as nutrition. If we could feed the gut or do TPN, are there special enteral considerations for vitamins or special tube feeds we should be using or for directly on TPN? Are there additional supplements we should be adding to our mix? So ideally, if you can start early, you can try to feed the patients a polymetric diet. So if the patient comes in and then gets over their SIRS within that first week, you can try to do that. We, of course, see primarily an elemental diet 
And I'll mention that, you know, we primarily feed elemental diet because it is the cheapest diet that we can buy, not because it's the correct diet. Now, whether or not uh, these patients should be getting immune enhancing diet, my bias would probably be no, primarily because you can never, based on the available data that patients who are septic have a theoretical increased risk of bad outcomes with an immune enhancing diet. Now, the challenge is to try to get nutrition into most of these patients in a timely fashion, yet not overstress their GI tract, because typically they can end up having a significant retroperitoneal edema, and you don't necessarily want to push them into like an abdominal compartment syndrome type scenario. I don't necessarily think that there's any additional benefit to giving any additional vitamins or minerals or anything like that. If you can just feed them either with a standard two feet or your elemental diet. Now, I do want to add one other comment. So, you know, the really sick patients, those that are have, have degrees of necrosis and the patient can only tolerate a little bit of two feet, I do agree. I think they benefit from having TPN. And typically, it's always challenging to get the pick line in because, you know, they have fevers. And you can never really know whether or not they're actually infected or not. And so just getting a line in without necessarily waiting for your pick line is probably the way to go. Patrick, can I just ask one question to Dr. Diaz about the combination of TPN and tube feeds? And Absolutely. Yeah. Go right ahead. So my question is, there a, do you think there's a physiologic benefit of continuing a trickle tube feed while you're starting that TPN, even though you know at a higher rate, at, they're generally not tolerating tube feeds, but there might be some physiologic benefit of a low rate to feeds while you're giving the TPN. Do you think that can provide benefit in this population? I do. I think that uh, one of the major issues associated with this patient population that doesn't get two feeds is an increased risk of other septic complications. So any degree of nutrition that the patient can tolerate, I think has a decrease. And, and that's been, this has been demonstrated in animal models and to some extent in trauma patients as you can decrease the infectious complications with nutrition, And the minimum amount of nutrition is usually approximately about, you know, 20, the equivalent of about 20 cc's to maintain some adequate protein going through the liver. And we, we obviously use this in a lot of critically ill patients and pancreatitis is the stepchild model for critical illness. I think we're ready to get into the nitty gritty part. We intentionally have a multidisciplinary team here. So we appreciate that everyone might not have the same answers. So our next thing we want to start talking about was interventions. And I know that at different phases, you know, of how to bail your surgeon, you care surgeon and GI may have different approaches. So what, in your opinion, do you think is the role for interventional radiology and what would be the ideal patient to undergo interventional radiology drainage? We just need an IR guy on here that we'd be totally set with all four uh, disciplines. Yeah. You know, that's a great question, Lauren. I think it really comes down to the multidisciplinary discussion about it. So, you know, there's so many different ways a patient with severe necrotizing pancreatitis can present. First of all, what are their symptoms? You know, is it uh, related to gastric outlet obstruction? Is it related to some form of infection? Where the collection is? Are we abutting the, the lumen of the GI tract that it's best aided by a transmural approach? Or is this something that is small enough that we could drain via a transpapillary approach when you look at it from an endoscopic perspective? Or is it something that's far away from, from all these structures down in the pelvis and the pelvic gutters that potentially a percutaneous approach would be feasible? I think it really depends upon the way the imaging presents and the symptoms that the patient has to determine 
how to proceed with, with IR versus endoscopy versus surgery. So I would agree that when we're talking about what is the best intervention for necrotizing pancreatitis, it really depends on a multitude of factors. And I think most of the research has focused on describing the severity of necrotizing pancreatitis, whether that's a CTSI score or a Ransom score, or whatever the score is that you want to use. And those are used to predict how bad it's going to get in the future. And that's certainly helpful, but it doesn't really matter how bad it's going to get. It's just what you're going to do about it. And I think it depends on the time. Like, are you still in a early phase, critically ill patient in the ICU in the first seven days who has compartment syndrome and is on multiple pressors is a very different patient than that patient who's four to six weeks out. And so that time interval has to factor into the decision of what's the best intervention. At our institution, we talk a lot about what type of complication is happening and what intervention benefits that complication. And so we describe fluid collections in four categories to help communicate better with each other. So from a gastroenterologist perspective, and we put them at the top here, is they get an A-type collection, which is posterior to the stomach. It's your sort of slam dunk transgastric drainage. A type B is one that goes along the gutters, and those are the pericolic gutters still in the retroperitoneal space. It's not peritonealized itself. It means it's like easy shot for uh, interventional radiologist. They can do it by ultrasound. They can put a drain in it. A type C is a combination of these two, where it's a retrogastric as well as pericolic or retro in the gutters. And that can be a dual drainage approach, whether you do an axios first or a percutaneous approach, you can combine them together and you can get optimal drainage from a dual drainage technique, which was described at Virginia Mason in Seattle. And then the fourth kind, which is the least exciting and the most troublesome is a mesenteric collection, which is a type D in our group. We use it as a type D is basically saying to everyone that I can't get to it from a less invasive approach. And good luck to the surgeon and trying to get to that because it's behind the SMA and it looks terrible and really not accessible, not amenable to any other drainageable approach. So that's how we classify as an ABCD to communicate with each other. And then we look at the timing and then do we need to just go in and do something now or do we, can we wait and wait and wait as much as possible, depending on how severe um, the disease is at that moment in time? Yeah, I definitely use the timing of presentation. The patient does not show any evidence of retroperitoneal error. We don't put a drain and typically try to, to get to the point where either it's an endoscopic or a open approach uh, or a potential for a VARDS approach. But usually we, the VARDS pathway we only get to, usually we end up putting a drain for infected pancreatic necrosis. I think the positioning described is actually very nice, Lance. Have you written that up or are you borrowing that from somebody else? So we proposed that about this sort of ABCD classification scheme we proposed about five years ago and presented at DDW and it's in one of the GI journals. So surgeons yeah. don't read it because we're just not the real audience for it. I think that is very interesting. One of the challenges I think that with coming up with a decision tree in terms of how to approach these collections, there is always at what point do you drain? You know, what is the options in terms of drainage? We actually drain it all. You know, there's some actual literature that says that uh, some patients are actually able to resolve it. You know, we haven't even touched on the possibility, the complications associated with 
lichenic portal venous thrombosis and the associated long-term complications associated with that. And I think a lot of that has to do with whether or the necrosis is near the head or neck or whether the necrosis is towards the body and tail and whether or not you know, that we're really, the population that we're thinking about is so small in most centers that that's not usually something you worry about. But definitely, you know, we are associated with the timing of intervention or IR drainage with the presentation of sepsis associated with infected pancreatic necrosis. I think most of our listeners will be familiar with a lot of the terms we're using, but we do have some young learners that listen to our trauma cast. So can one of you explain what is meant by VARD? So VARD is Video Assisted Retroperitoneal Debridement. It is a term or the acronym that is used now where after a patient has had a retroperitoneal drain placed, typically for infected pancreatic necrosis. And once the patient is stable, usually also once all, everything in the retroperitoneum has kind of died off, then it becomes safe to go in there and begin to debris some of that material that has not drained out to the brain. The literature also mentions that about a third of the patients who end up with a retroperitoneal drain don't need any other intervention. The management of the drain, we haven't touched on either in terms of whether or not you irrigate a little bit or irrigate a lot whether or not you use any fibrin breaking down medications. By that, I mean streptokinase or TPA or even Dornase, or whether or not you do high-grade irrigation, very similar to what's been previously described from the group from Seattle, you know, as high as 100 cc's every time you irrigate it out. But the video-assisted debridement is basically we use a thoracoscope and actually manually go in and pick out the dead stuff. And timeline, how long from initial onset is it usually before you'd be able to actually perform a VARD? The safe period is very similar to doing a cystostrostomy. You wait between five to six weeks to make sure that everything is settled down. There's a good capsule around the area. And then you can begin, and hopefully all that's going to die has died. And then it's safe to be able to remove stuff out. I would imagine it's very similar, Dr. Shama, when you're going to do the endoscopic. Yeah, no, thank you. Uh, you know, it's very interesting. The current international guidelines advocate for postponement until you have that acute necrotic collection that's walled off into a walled off necrosis. And generally that's approximately four weeks. Obviously the longer you can defer, generally the better. It's interesting because the group out of Minnesota did a really nice study where they looked at individuals that they had intervened on early, less than four weeks. And what they also looked at was whether these patients had formed walls, partially formed walls, or no walls. And they actually intervened on patients with no walls. And what they found was that the procedure-related adverse events, complications, and the early approach did not differ in any way from those that they waited for more than four weeks. And I think learned a little bit from from that study and, and a lot from experience as well in that we oftentimes try and wait the four weeks because that's been the traditional teaching and education. And we believe the longer we wait, we obviously know the safer it can be. However, there is that ability when you do endoscopic ultrasound to actually pick up some wall there on these cavities that isn't always recognized radiographically. And I think in those instances, it may still be safe to intervene a little earlier. More data is obviously needed in this area, but I think it's, it's, a, it's a very controversial area. And one area that I'm excited about, because I think, you know, it's an opportunity to help these patients a little earlier endoscopically or through a VARD type intervention, should there be some form of wall that exists. 
Could you describe to us what you do endoscopically when you're doing a debridement or necrosectomy? Yeah, absolutely. So generally speaking, we try and do these all EUS guided. So we take a look with a camera with an EUS transducer at the tip of the scope. It's a linear echo endoscope. So it has a transducer that creates images in the plane of the scope, creating about 180 degree image. We look at what we're able to do is, is identify through the stomach wall exactly what the cavity looks like. The walled off necrosis may look like if there's a uh, wall formation, how thick that wall is, whether the cavity is completely fluid filled, consistent with a pseudocyst, or whether there's heterogeneous material in there consistent with a walled off necrosis. If we can see shadowing consistent with air, we then, you know, under Doppler guidance, will try and stick a needle or use a hot lumen opposing metal stent system to essentially cauterize a tract between the stomach wall or duodenal wall into the cavity and deploy, generally speaking, in, the, in these cases, a lumen opposing metal stent, which if any of you are not familiar with or anyone listening to this podcast not familiar with, it's essentially a dumbbell shaped fully covered stent with the ends that are twice the diameter of the saddle section. It's about one centimeter in length, but we can deploy it under EUS guidance, the distal flange, and then the proximal flange under the endoscopic guidance, all at the same setting. It takes about 45 seconds to deploy the stent. We dilate the waste, and then we can enter the cavity using a forward viewing therapeutic endoscope and perform debridements using various devices, including rat tooth forceps or snares. There's a new device that's available and FDA approved called an endorotor, which essentially works as like miniaturized rotor to kind of chop up the, the necrosis within under suction. And it still takes quite some time to you know eradicate a lot of the necrotic area. And certainly there's some types of necrosis that respond better than, than the more fibrotic types. But on the whole, we're seeing more and more advancement in this area for necrotizing pancreatitis. I think as intensive as we think a lot about what are our endpoints, uh, resuscitation, and what brings you back to the operating room or to the endoscopy suite again. So when do you consider yourself done with, say, an endoscopic debridement or a BARD? And what indicators make you consider going back again after you've done a previous debridement? So, Pat, I'll comment on sort of the timeline from the onset of disease to when you do your intervention and, and the spectrum of disease, because in that first seven days in your critically ill patient in the ICU is very different than a person who has been on the floor, got discharged, they got their gallbladder out and then readmits after two to three weeks. It's a different patient population, but they both can have a setting of necrotizing pancreatitis that certainly can be infected. And when we talk about the patient that is in that first 30 days and are endoscopy colleagues are thinking about, well, is it the right time to drain this collection that's really not well-formed behind the stomach and the person's had five CTs and you're looking at it and they're fevering and now they have air bubbles and such, you're thinking it's infected. You know, we, we, I tell my junior residents because they're the ones who cover our ICU predominantly on a day-to-day basis is what are the hard signs that we need to operate now? And I tell them that compartment syndrome is a good indication for an operation because you don't have to actually address necrosis. You can just decompress them and they'll get better. And that's a good, if a person is now bleeding from their pancreatitis and you can't control it with IR, that's a good reason to operate. 
if they have a biliary obstruction and jaundice that fails ERCP and fails PTC placement, that certainly makes sense for a person who would need some type of operation. And then a perforated viscous or ischemic bowel. And those patients show up with free air and a dead transverse colon and or whole colon that's dead. Those are the hard signs that the surgeon needs to step up and operate. I just want to make sure that everyone knows that. And those are the patients that scare me the most is that nothing's mature. It's not happy. That pancreas doesn't like you. And it's not ready to have the operation that could actually make the patient better. You're just trying to get them through the night. And so it might actually be taking their colon out and diverting them and laying drains and coming back another day to address the pancreas itself. So that's something early on. If you have a patient that, however, that has a large retroperitoneal collection that's not mature, they're critically ill, they're not doing well, and they have a viable collection that can be drained percutaneous through a retroperitoneal approach, which is the plane between the colon and the kidney, not a, a transabdominal approach. The worst thing you can do is take a retroperitoneal process of necrotizing pancreatitis and put a drain through the mesentery in the anteroabdominal wall because that's quote, the easiest window. And then you can make a patient actually really sick. So I, I work really close with IR when we're talking about a patient in the first seven to 14 days that needs intervention from IR to do that drain lateral as possible. Because I'm thinking two to three weeks later, I might have to do a VARD. And as Dr. Diaz mentioned, it's rarely necessary to do that VARD procedure later on, but you want to be set up and ready to do it. From an endoscopic approach, you certainly can do it early on. I think that there's a lot of tricks of the trade to be able to do it earlier than four weeks because you got to be very safe. There was an era when we didn't have a trans aluminol opposing stent or the axio stent. We didn't have these dumbbell shaped stents and we had to put pigtails into the retroperitoneum and they were fraught with complications because you get your wire in and then you try to get a pigtail in and it fell out and you couldn't get your scope back in. The hole wasn't big enough and the balloon dilator didn't work. Now with the hot tip luminal opposing stent, it takes most average gastroenterologists to do this and can read an ultrasound, they can place ones, which is awesome because a lot of places now can treat these patients. The question is once they have that done, like you've asked, when do you go back and how much do you need to do? And I'll defer to our gastroenterology colleagues to weigh in on like repeat enteroscopy for repeat necrosectomies. And there's an average that's pretty darn high if you don't inform a patient you can do one open necrosectomy and be done with it and discharge the patient versus like six endoscopies. It really depends on the individual though. Um, but that's part of the consent for the patient is what do you want done? And four weeks out or six weeks out and they're actually doing well, they just have a lot of pain and need, they need their gallbladder out. Sometimes a laparoscopic transgastric approach, do your necrosectomy that way, take their gallbladder out and then discharge them in two days is actually well-tolerated procedure. So it really depends on the context of sort of how you tackle it. For the open abdomen after decompression from abdominal compartment syndrome, there is some literature supporting direct peritoneal resuscitation or the DPR drains to help for uh, pancreatitis. Is that something you've added into your practice as, a, as another tool? Well, as you recall, when you were here, we were doing DPR and then we also did large volume irrigation and you know, if you don't know history, you don't remember where you were. And apparently we did that back in the 80s and in the 70s, large volume irrigation, although that was not with the dialysis that we currently have today. Uh, I think it's really kind of dependent on the situation that you have. I mean, I think if you get in there and find very dirty appearing pancreatic ascites, 
I think there's probably is some benefit. If all you have is just kind of some serous fluid in the abdomen and it, most of the source of the abdominal compartment syndrome is the retroperitoneum that's come all the way up to the anterior abdominal wall, I don't think any volume of DPR is actually going to help that. Yeah, that makes sense. I think that was a really important point there that everyone should latch on to is that when you peritonealize a retroperitoneal process of necrotizing pancreatitis, people just get so sick. And you'll see a fluid collection. It's in the retroperitoneum. It's fairly large. And all of a sudden you see a bunch of ascites and patient has compartment syndrome and is super sick. And if you decompress that, they can get substantially better. The question is, will they reaccumulate that and will laying additional drains provide benefit? And I think, and what do you do with those drains? I think it's, it, there's so much variability across the country on what people do. I don't think there's a right answer here. I think it's a combination, but I don't explore the retroperitoneum, which is contrary to a lot of people. I don't bother going back there because then I just have the patient go to IR for those drains to get their drains placed in the retroperitoneum because I'm going to come back with a VARD in a couple of weeks when it's actually going to be beneficial. And that can be highly debated and it's not the right answer because I don't know what the right answer is, but decompressing them when they're dying does help a lot. And when you see pancreatic juice in the peritoneum, laying drains may be beneficial. It just depends on what you do with them. Yeah, I would second that. I think that there are a few patients that I've seen in my career that, you know, they present really sick. They have a bunch of ascites and, you know, a few we've actually done laparoscopically. And, you know, you, they, they look like you got Coca-Cola coming out of the drains. And so surprisingly, within a very short period of time, they tend to get better. And there are others that you decompress and you just have this usual ascites fluid and, you know, they continue to get sick. And I agree, current recommendations are you should not go messing with a retroperitoneum if the patient has abdominal compartment syndrome for the first couple of weeks, if not, maybe a little bit longer. We've actually closed some of these patients and not necessarily put any drains in during their early one or two weeks with abdominal compartment syndrome. I always fear that we are going to end up contaminating the retroperitoneum and causing what was not infected into an infected pancreatic necrosis. So I, I, I harp on my team not to go messing with the retroperitoneum in these settings. Just to get back to a point that Clancy raised earlier with respect to endoscopy and the need for repeat necrosectomies, you know, I think a lot of it also depends upon the population you serve. There's some practices that are accepted to place aluminum posing metal stent and bring the patient back in a week and bring them back scheduled on a weekly basis until the, the cavity can be cleared. It's our practice to actually, once we place that aluminum posing metal stent, to do as much necrosectomy at that index procedure as possible, recognizing that in West Virginia, it's not always easy for patients to get back on a scheduled basis. These are patients that have a low socioeconomic status oftentimes. And so we have to be aware that, you know, we want to get them as cleaned out as possible and as early as possible. Otherwise, it may be difficult to get them back. The other reason why I bring that up is actually there's a secondary issue in this new era of luminoposing metal stents that was first reported out of the group from Orlando, which essentially after these collections collapse, if the stent isn't removed, there's the risk of the distal flange eroding into the surrounding vasculature, especially with the, with the varices and things that can form in, in these patients, leading to some significant or even catastrophic bleeding. They reported cases of pretty serious bleeding 
that occurred after three to five weeks of having these stents in. And so my practice has always been to put double pigtails through these stents, ironically, to just try and protect that distal flange from eroding or causing any injury. But always, it's also our practice and something for all surgeons to be aware of that patients that have these stents placed may present with some serious complications of bleeding. And, you know, you may be asked to, to do some interventions that you otherwise may not have expected to occur once we got good access to these cavities. And so it's just something to keep in mind. And, you know, the earlier we can get those stents out, the better. Generally speaking, in our practice, we always re-image the patient at three to four weeks with stent removal at five weeks. So we can avoid that complication as much as possible. They can also erode through the stomach. I've taken them out of the retroperitoneum. Uh, and they can also erode back into the stomach and then uh, not the longer be functional as well. Yeah. But I did want to ask you if you have had the opportunity to manage and also plans to have the opportunity to manage patients who had both endoscopic and combined large procedures for the type D patients, I think you described, that may have a, both a type C plus a D. Yeah, we've managed patients as such. And I think, you know, that combined approach can be quite beneficial. The one thing that we have to be weary of or keep in mind is, is, you know, the increased risk of developing a fistula, you know, in that regard, because if they have an endoscopic access point, as well as to a cavity that also communicates to where the video assisted retroperitoneal drainage point accesses, then we suddenly can have a risk of having a fistula form. I've had a couple of patients where we've had fistulas form and sometimes they can be difficult to close. However, in, in this new era of also having endoscopic suturing, we're able to use that as an opportunity to close these fistulas tracks down. Another opportunity also is doing endoscopic vacuum assisted closure with an endovac where you have a polyurethane sponge that you tie to a tip of an NG tube and every few days you're exchanging it out. But Again, getting back to the point earlier, these are a lot of endoscopic procedures ultimately that the patient can undergo. You just proposed two really, really novel interventions for a thing that can be not well recognized if you don't use a multidisciplinary team that communicates well. And so just for the listeners, when you put a transluminal opposing stent in, they are pretty sizable and they create a hole in the stomach into a collection that's in the retroperitoneum, or maybe anywhere, it depends on where they put it. When you put a percutaneous drain into that same collection, you can create a gastrocutaneous fistula unknowingly. And it is essentially like putting an uncontrolled G-tube in a person. And if you have a person who's doing spectacular, and it's very typical the day after putting an endoluminal opposing stent, the patient is, is feeling a lot better and wants to eat, and they start a diet and you see their diet come out of their percutaneous drain, you can end up with a high volume gastric fistula. And some people don't recognize that and just think it's retroperitoneal fluid now working better and tube feeds can show up in the drain and such. And so you just have to be aware of that potential fistula. My personal approach, because of several uh, deaths due to this problem by providers that did not understand the, the created complication, not at our hospital, but people have been sent in for recovery of this problem. If you're going to put a percutaneous drain in and do an axio stent, take the percutaneous drain out before or really close to the time that you put the axio stent in, and then mature the track up from the stomach and create your fistula to the stomach to the retroperitoneal collection. 
That's our approach. I haven't done the reverse. And the question is, why would you want to do the reverse? And that, that might be in the context where you think your endoscopic approach is not going to be successful. And typically, I find it the other way around, where you get better irrigation, you get better endoscopic management and debridement than you do with a percutaneous approach. But again, it could be institutional specific and in how that's done. And some people are very aggressive with IR debridement versus endoscopic debridement. It just depends on the expertise and interest. Yeah, it really kind of depends more on the patient's pattern of pancreatic necrosis. And I would agree that ideally you don't want to put a drain and then the transgastric vent and then end up with a bigger hole outside than through the stomach, and then now you have an obvious fistula. The times I've ended up doing this is when there's failure of, of endoscopic approach, primarily because of the mesenteric necrosis that ends up becoming a, a bit hazardous. You're trying, you're scoping several inches away from stomach, and now you're in the middle of a lot of high value real estate that uh, ends up being challenging. You put the rotor rooter in there, game could be over pretty quick. And I've had to use VARD's approach to be able to clean that out. And I've had only a couple of cases where I've actually put the gastroscope through the trocar site via the VARD's access to actually clean out the gutters to help with some of the pancreatic necrosis, primarily because my instrumentation wouldn't make a left-handed turn. So sometimes you have to be very novel with some of these pancreatic retroperitoneal collections look like clovers. There's, you know, just, it just keeps expanding out to the point where, you know, it has several arms and everything is originating from behind the stomach and it's difficult to sometimes adequately drain. You know, the area in and around the duodenum, when you're putting in drains on the patient's left side, it actually becomes very hazardous and ending up with a hole in duodenum is sometimes a big deal. Are you suggesting a robotic bard? <laughs> I was just thinking, I'm glad that we're going through some of the anatomy. That was my question a while ago was to explain it. And I appreciate that because it, it almost sounds like you could create a Betsy Wetsy, right? Fluid in the mouth and it comes right out some retroperitoneal cutaneous fistula. You mentioned taking patients in from other hospitals. Uh, Dr. Diaz mentioned that he's at a transfer center. I'm sure that the other two are also transfer centers with all of the expertise that you have. So if the local expertise is a regional hospital or, or maybe like a level two type trauma center that's big, but not as big as you have it, more of a level one or an academic center, what are some of the kind of cut points to, to encourage outside centers to transfer the patient? And I was wondering with, as a secondary to that question, with, with all the hospital overload we've had the past year, have you done you know, some virtual consulting to help walk your colleagues through it and maybe managing some of these patients at these outside facilities? And, and if so, if you're going to keep that practice going forward, pick one of the four questions I threw in there and you can just go with it. I'll take this. So from our perspective in somewhat rural central North Carolina in a larger complex health system, you know, I will definitely coach surgeons through a necrosectomy or a VARD or whatever they need to do at the time that they find themselves having to operate. And so I've been on the phone I've been looking at as simultaneously looking at the CT scans and, and certainly doing that. And there's context where that makes sense. And I think all of us as surgeons have that responsibility and it's for any operation. You'd be available to do that if that's your area of expertise. So that definitely happens. We do have resource limitations and bed availability, and that comes up all the time. And one of the things that we have done is done their endoscopic necrosectomy and then send them back. 
So they come down, they get their procedure and they go back or they sit, they come down and they get their endoscope, their IR procedure and then go back. And so some of the, the invasive procedures can be done where we have the expertise locally and then we coordinate for them to go back to the regional hospital for the remainder of their care, as long as there's an accepting surgeon or physician who is well aware of this. I think that that happens nowadays and a lot of collaboration. And I will just say that most of our endoscopists are familiar with these procedures. They just don't have the equipment to do it. And they're more than willing to care for the patient after the procedure. There's some realistic problems when the place has two ICU beds, you know, and and they just can't take care of the, the sudden changes like a, a bleed that can happen after a procedure, for example. So there's certain contexts where you wouldn't transfer them, but back and forth, but certainly there are options like that. We do similar practices, I know, with transferring patients for procedures and then trying to get them back at other institutions. I know I'm not on here as a guest, but <laughs> just a comment. And do you have hard stops? Like if you're at this point or this many days into the process, it almost kind of triggers the phone call? Or do you leave that just to the discretion and judgment of the surgeon or the medical team that's managing these patients? So the University of Maryland system is 13 hospitals within the state. And so we were doing, in the, in the depths of the COVID pandemic, we were only doing consulting, video consulting. And if necessary, the patient would come and get either an IR drain or an endoscopic procedure and then get sent back. We did have some hard stops for those patients that were needing higher level of critical care management, uh, not therapy to be transferred into the main medical center. But typically a lot of the interventions that could not be managed at the local facility, they would come in and get transferred back. So we've touched briefly on it, but this is really a disease that has acute, subacute, and really chronic implications. So before we wrap up, I was wondering if each one of our guests would be able to comment on one of the chronic issues that you deal with for these patients and how you manage it. Pick your favorite. I would love to hear about the splenic vein thrombosis and the varices that I think Shyam had mentioned uh, before. Our experience is that of those patients that survive with severe necrotizing pancreatitis, about 30% of the patients develop varices, but even a smaller percent of patients actually ever get symptomatic. And the finestrial hypertension is classically described where the spleen gets real big, they get gastropathy. We've had a few patients present with actual upper GI bleed that usually end up getting a uh, splenectomy. They, all these patients end up coming to our clinic and we follow them serially over, you know, 18 months seeing that uh, as their pancreatic necrosis either completely resolves or they end up getting their gallbladder out or we're following their splenic vein thrombosis and they're following their nutritional status before we hand them back to their local PCP. And it's surprising the percentage of patients that actually develop retroperitoneal varices that get significant and then to some degree involute over time. Those that involute actually still maintain a patent portal vein or splenic vein. Those that do not end up with some degree of stricture And one of the areas of study that we're currently looking at is our previous experience of managing those patients that develop portal or SMV thrombosis with anticoagulation over the course of their acute episodes and then long-term. And about 40% of those patients are able to maintain patency of the portal vein. And at least based on a retrospective review, 
have not progressed to splenic vein thrombosis, or I mean, uh, left-sided portal hypertension. And that's just Jose, our you, small, small data set. Jose, are you talking about putting patients on therapeutic anticoagulation to prevent uh, splenic vein or portal vein thrombosis? Yes. Is there a theoretical or real fear that you would convert a necrotizing pancreatitis into a hemorrhagic pancreatitis? Yes. Yes, that is one of the uh, one of the challenges, and I mean, most of these patients are being prophylaxed for, or you know, standard DVT prophylaxis. We do not treat splenic vein thrombosis, but if they have portal vein or superior or a mesenteric vein thrombosis or evidence of clot, we will systemically anticoagulate them. The complication is bleeding. So I would completely agree. That's our our practice as well. If they have a splenic vein thrombosis, we do not anticoagulate them due to the increased risk of bleeding associated with their pancreatitis. And remember, we're talking about the severe pancreatitis patients, that 15% of patients who develop severe necrotizing pancreatitis. And so this is not all pancreatitis patients, acute pancreatitis patients. So if they have that clot there, we don't treat it. However, if they have SMV or portal vein partial occlusion or occlusion, we do anticoagulate them because I will tell you that of all the patients that I've ever taken care of with necrotizing pancreatitis that survive, the ones that are GI cripples are those who've had a, an acute thrombosis of their portal vein. They stay in the hospital the longest. They struggle and struggle with advancing their diet and it takes six to 12 months before they develop enough collaterals to be able to take in and tolerate an oral diet. And it's a really devastating thing. I think much more common is steatorrhea and exocrine insufficiency and, and less so the long-term diabetes effects of acute pancreatitis and certainly glucose instability around their acute process is present, but sort of the long-term exocrine and endocrine insufficiency problems are there, but they're not a major concern from a surgeon's perspective, but this portal vein thrombosis stands out as one of the most difficult things to manage. Sinestral hypertension and left-sided portal hypertension is no longer a concern. There's a lot of data that shows that you don't need to do a splenectomy. The bleeding risk is really low. Endoscopic intervention is a very viable option. So we don't have to empirically take a spleen out just because a person has a splenic vein thrombosis at some point in the past. Just to add to that, I think a couple of the other things that we look for in these patients who are treated for their necrotizing pancreatitis, I always like to make sure that these patients, when, when they come to follow up a couple months later, uh, we've checked them for pancreatic insufficiency. If they're demonstrating any, any evidence of such, then we'll put them on pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy. Those that had gallbladder-induced necrotizing pancreatitis, make sure their gallbladders were taken out. Otherwise, I may call Lauren or one of our colleagues to say, Hey, this guy's still got his gallbladder in. You guys want to, can I send him over for a coli? And then the third thing, which I'm finding, you know, which I've kind of observed in this patient population, and I think it hasn't really been well studied in this group, but is definitely there when you look at patients with like necrotizing fasciitis is the mental health. I mean, some of these patients go through some really critical illness type experiences. And what I found is, is that their mental health is not always what it was prior to, you know, their sense of global well-being is, is not where it was prior to their illness. And in some cases, I've sent these patients to a mental health expert 
to get their opinion and help them recover from that standpoint, because that has so much to do with ultimately how these patients end up doing. So those are really kind of the, the major things that we look for. The acronym is PICS, post-ICU syndrome. Yeah. Okay. Then they, uh, we recognize this in uh, trauma patients and other critical ill patients. Uh, I would agree that I think this is probably complicated by not only the PIC syndrome, but especially in the alcoholics, the uh, depression that usually sets in. Uh, I think you have a combined PTSD with post-ICU syndrome, but it's a real problem. I'll just echo the importance of that in a population which had upwards of 50% mortality at one point, in our, if we look at some of the surgical literature, a 50% mortality in, in most institutions it's approaching around 5% mortality. Places that are doing a lot of multidisciplinary care, what we've been talking about today, your mortalities can be down around 5% for a severe acute pancreatitis. And with that, that means that 95% of people with this disease are survivors of the disease. Out of Pittsburgh, there's a great study looking at survivors of acute severe necrotizing pancreatitis and how catastrophic it is to their overall well-being. There's another study out of India looking at the similar long-term sequelae of the disease from a mental health standpoint. And even if they never made it to the ICU, but they required 25 procedures and 16 IR visits, you know, they spent half the year in the endoscopy suite, can be very devastating uh, mentally. And so I echo, that's a really important thing to focus on. And I find that our APP, Advanced Practice Practitioners, they really help in play a central role in that longitudinal care of these patients. They get to know them over a long period of time and can really focus on those areas of need. We've unfortunately come to the end of our time. Thank you very much to our guests today. You really made our jobs as moderators very easy. We appreciate you shedding light on this very difficult clinical problem. If you haven't had a chance, please check out the East Minutes and other education opportunities provided on the East Trauma webpage provided to you by the Online Education Committee. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the East Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting edge science and research, professional education, network and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the East.